0: Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, If you've been with us for some time, you know we've been working through the book of Galatians. And uh, we actually come to a section in Galatians, which is a little bit of a turning point in the book. Uh, You'll notice that the tone is a little bit different a little more personal from Paul to the Galatians. And, um, and then next week we'll sort of pick up and, and, and you'll notice a, a change in the subject matter. But this is kind of a, a turning point and so Paul makes some personal remarks to the Galatians um, as you'll hear. Would you, uh, would you please pray with me before we read God's word? Our Father in heaven, we... We look to you, uh, we look to you for the gift of your spirit. Uh, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would enlighten our eyes, illuminate our minds. You would give us understanding as we hear your word, as we uh, hear it read and preach this morning. We pray, Father, that you, by your spirit, would use your word to, to bring it to bear on our hearts and our lives. Uh, that You would draw us closer to You this morning through Your Son, Jesus, uh, that You would challenge us, that You would encourage us, uh, that, you would, that You would show us Your grace uh, once again. Uh, Father, we, we pray for the work of Your Spirit in our midst, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. You were running well, Many of the things that have been done in the name of the cross have been completely contrary to the meaning of the cross. So the the Crusades, the Inquisition, the support of slavery in the American South, all kinds of prejudice, oppression, violence have been done in the name of Jesus. Now these are, are things for which we can make no excuse uh, we can only confess the sinfulness of those kinds of things, uh, seek to make amends where appropriate and pray that God would fill us with His spirit so that we would not make the same mistakes as our forefathers. But because of those kinds of things, many people are quick to reject Christianity. And if that is you, uh, let me encourage you that those things are not Christianity, right? They are not the gospel. Um, just because a Christian or even a group of Christians acts out of accord with the Christian message, uh, please don't reject the Christian message. It deserves a hearing despite its worst adherence and sometimes despite its best adherence. Part of the teaching of Christianity, of course, is that we are broken and that we often fail to live up to our highest ideals. And so the reality of Christians who live contrary to the Christian message of grace Ironically, only serves to prove other parts of the Christian message true. And yet even when we strip away all of that baggage, all the the baggage that people bring to Christianity, even when you look just at the message itself, apart from the ways it has been distorted and perverted, that message often remains unpopular. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about the unpopularity of the cross, uh, the danger of being led away from the cross, the reality of rejection for the cross, and our hope in light of the cross. Um, Put differently, we're going to talk about scandal, persuasion, persecution, and hope. First, scandal. Scandal. I want us to start uh, this morning close to the end of the text in verse 11. Verse 11 says this Paul says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And I want us to to start with this phrase the offense of the cross. uh, the, the, the Greek word under offense is the word uh, scandalon, and uh, you can hear uh, in that our English word scandal. Scandal. Uh, Paul is talking about the scandal of the cross. Um, the cross is scandalous, it's offensive in and of itself. And I, I do kind of wonder if it has lost that weight uh, for us. Uh, you know, we're so quick uh, to, to wear the cross on jewelry, to put it on greeting cards, even the front of our bulletin. Uh, and I wonder if the weightiness of the cross has, has been lost on us. There's an offensiveness to the message of Christianity, And I'm not talking about Christians who are offensive, right? Uh, That may be true, right? That's our fault, right? We need to to own that, get rid of our offensiveness in our character. Uh, But but I'm talking simply about the cross itself is offensive. Uh, You know, we believe here at All Souls uh, in a, a gospel of grace, right? That is a good news of God's favor and love in Christ. Uh, And you might think, okay, favor and love in Christ, how could that ever be offensive? Well, uh, let me say the gospel itself has offended many people throughout history. It offends many people today. And if we're preaching it rightly, uh, we're likely going to offend some people uh, as a church. Okay, So, the question we need to ask, right, is how? How how is the gospel offensive? What is the offense of the cross as Paul talks about it? What is the scandal of the cross? Uh, Let me mention four things, uh, four reasons that the cross is so offensive, and uh, I'm sure we could come up with more, uh, but but here are four of them. Uh, The first is that the cross implies human sinfulness. Jesus died for sin. The cross teaches that we are sinful, uh, which is not something that most of us want to hear. Um, And it's not just that we've made a few mistakes, uh, not not just that we're forgetful or distracted or just different. Uh, No, the cross says that we, all of us, are sinful, broken. We are rebellious at heart, and Jesus came to die for that rebellion. Jesus came to bear our sin. So, so this is good news, right? He came to bear our sin, but sometimes it's hard to get past the word sin. But in order to receive that good news, I must accept the bad news about myself, that I'm sinful, that I'm rebellious at heart, that I don't love God and my neighbor the way I'm called to. Add to that, too, that the cross implies judgment. It implies that we are sinful. Jesus died for sin, but it implies that sin deserves judgment. Jesus bore God's curse for sin for us. He took our judgment in our place at the cross. You know, few people want to be told that they are sinful. Even fewer want to be told that their sin deserves condemnation. You know, make no mistake, right? The message of the cross implies necessarily a message of sin and condemnation. It's the offense of the cross. And I know you might ask, okay, well, why would you want to bring these things up, right? Why not just leave those skeletons in the closet of Christianity? Just focus on the fact that God, you know, the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. Why bring those other things up? Well, because These things display the glory of Christ, right? God's love is for sinful human beings. And that caused him to bear our punishment himself. Christianity is not only a message of sin and condemnation. It is a message of the Father's love in sending his Son to bear sin and condemnation in our place that we might receive forgiveness and grace, right? The forgiveness and grace... (laughs) are in light of the sin and condemnation that Jesus bore. And so you can't have one without the other. But again, in order to accept that message, we must admit that we are fundamentally broken, that we are morally corrupt, and that that corruption deserves God's just punishment. That's the offense of the cross. But there's more. Three, the cross implies our Inability, our powerlessness. This is where the Galatians were tempted to to obscure the message a little bit. You know, the cross teaches us that our situation was so dire that our judgment was so certain that God himself had to come and take on human skin and, and come in the flesh and bear our punishment for us. The implication is, right, we could not save ourselves. And you might believe in the first two things that we just said, and not the third, right? You might believe that people are sinful, uh, you might believe that judgment is real, but you might also believe that yes, we dug ourselves down deep, but we can dig ourselves out again. Right? We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can make things right. But the cross says that we are powerless to save ourselves and that God himself had to intervene. God had to come and save us. So the cross, the good news of God's love is scandalous and offensive, especially to those who think that they are good, or that God is only love, or that we can pretty much do anything we put our minds to. <coughs> the cross says, no, we're actually, we're not good. And, and God is clearly loving in that he gave us his son, but he's also righteous and just and holy, and he does punish sin that we are powerless when it comes to our moral state before our Father. Well, finally, in light of all this, fourth, the cross implies the hopelessness of our condition. You know, we are are sinful, and judgment is real, and we are powerless to do anything about it. And what that means is our situation is hopeless apart from the cross, which means whoever you are, Uh, whether Muslim or Jew or Buddhist or agnostic or atheist or Christian, you will one day stand before uh, the throne of God's grace and you will have to give an account for everything you've done, every thought, every word. The Bible teaches that if you have not trusted in Jesus, that the swift arm of justice will fall. Jesus talked about judgment more than anyone And I can only believe that that part of that was because he knew that he was going to face it for his people. He was going to taste it. So he wanted to warn others of its coming. Of course, if you have trusted in Jesus, right, if you look to him and trust in him and believe in his work in the cross, if you look to the cross, then your punishment has already been dealt. Jesus has tasted punishment in your place so that you don't have to. You know, our, our culture, as many cultures, I think, wants to assert the, the goodness of humanity, the, the, the blindness of God to matters of justice under the guise of love. Really, they're, they're not the same thing. Um, the unlimited potential of humanity and a, and a kind of unfettered hopefulness in the human condition. I mean, who doesn't wanna believe those things, right? I mean, I'd like to believe those things, but I can't because they're not true. And so are you ready to accept that that human sin, the justice of God, uh, the impotence of men to save ourselves, the hopelessness of the human condition apart from Jesus, those are weighty things. But that's the scandal of the cross. That's the offense of the cross. But of course it's because those things are so weighty that God's grace is so radical and free. God's bearing the judgment of sinners, offering to save us apart from anything we ourselves do, because really there's nothing we could do. God, out of his love, takes the place of sinful men and women. That's God's radical grace, that he would take that weightiness upon himself for us in our place. But you can understand, I think, while some, why some would want to tone down that message, um, to tone down the weightiness of the cross is ultimately to take away from the radicalness of God's grace. Which brings us to our next point about persuasion. See, in the church of Galatia, uh, certain teachers had come to tone down Paul's message. They taught that there are some things that you can do, that your works are required in order for God to save you. They came, quote, preaching circumcision which was really just the first step for them in a long list of things that they taught needed to be done in order to be saved. The end result, we're told in verse seven, was that they hindered the Galatians from obeying the truth. That is, they turned them uh, away from the gospel of God's grace in Christ. They turned them to the anti-gospel of human effort, the bad news of human effort. The attraction of the message, though, is that there's something that you can do. Um, whether it's you know, just be circumcised and everything will be fine or, or just read your Bible and pray, right? This is repeatedly the message that we want to hear. Just give me something I can do. Just tell me what to do. Uh, maybe it's just be baptized or just be con- uh, convert to this new religion or just become a suicide bomber or just be a nice person as defined right by your middle-class American values. Anything that we can do right, is what we want to hear. We want to hear that we're not helpless, which means our sin is not so bad. Right? There's something I can do. And the false teachers in Galatia tried to tone down Paul's message, and they sought, sought to persuade the Galatians to trust in human effort and not in Christ alone. And, and notice how they, they did that. They, first, they, they did it subtly. Uh, Paul says in verse 9, Uh, Verse 9, he says, A a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, The idea is, right, uh, you you maybe can gather, it doesn't take much to corrupt the whole. Um, It's like our proverb, you know, one rotten apple spoils the barrel. You've heard that proverb? Um, You see, these false teachers, they were not outright denying Jesus. Uh, they, They weren't saying reject Jesus and believe in circumcision. They were saying, yes, believe in Jesus, but, but be circumcised too, right? Jesus plus circumcision. It's close, right? It's so close. Believe in Jesus, they would say, and do this other thing. But it subtly shifts the focus away from Jesus and God's unearned favor, right, to human effort. What do we need to do? And they not only sought to lead the Galatians away from Jesus subtly, right, just adding a little bit to the Christian message, but also uh, deceptively in a couple different ways. It, it seemed that they were teaching that Paul himself preached circumcision. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, they, uh, Paul says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? See, apparently the false teachers taught that Paul actually did preach circumcision. But he had left that out when talking to the Galatians because he wanted to make it easy for them to be converted. You know, Paul changed his message to win converts, they uh, taught. He's really on our side. Paul says, No, if that were the case, why are they still persecuting me? Their whole approach is dishonest in another way. Uh, Paul brings it out actually in verse 12. Verse 12, which says, Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Um, now, this is an odd verse. It, it seems uh, just like a, a frustrated outburst from Paul, right? Um, like he just, he just can't take it anymore. He doesn't know what else to say. So he just kind of blurts out whatever comes to his mind. Uh, but it's actually more than that. And uh, three things to note about this word emasculate uh, here in verse 12. You never thought a pastor would say that, right? Three things to note about the word emasculate. Um, one, uh, the, the root word here is actually the same as the root word in verse, uh, for the word hinder in verse seven. So that's interesting, right? Verse seven. Uh, verse seven could be translated, you were running well, who cut you off? Or who cut in front of you, right? Like we talk about if you're driving and somebody cuts you off, right? Uh, That's the language here. And uh, the false teachers had cut off the Galatians in their race of faith, right? They had cut them short in their walk of faith. And now Paul wishes that they would cut themselves off. So there's a certain amount of ironic justice in Paul's words, right? You've cut the Galatians off. I wish you would cut yourself off. Uh, Second, uh, emasculation under the Old Covenant was to to, uh, figuratively cut oneself off from God's people, right? Uh, If if you were emasculated, you couldn't enter into the community of God's people. And um, here, even here, uh, this word is actually just the word for cut off. That's all the word is. Uh, Jesus uses the word, uh, elsewhere, when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's the same word. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, Jesus says. Um, so it could be translated here, uh, I wish they would cut themselves off, meaning cut themselves off from the people of God. Right? I wish they would cut themselves off from the people of God. They're causing you trouble. And I wish they would. I wish they would just leave the body altogether. So whether we translate it, uh, there, there's uh, the meaning is cut themselves off from the people of God. Whether we translate it as emasculate or not, because either way they would be removed from the body. Right is the idea. Third, um, emasculation was actually a pagan cultic custom. Uh, and we've already seen in Paul, interestingly enough, that um, Paul sees trusting in circumcision and trusting in the law as a return to paganism. Right? We've seen that a couple times. Paul has compared the two. And Paul might be saying here, look, if they're going to take on Jewish circumcision, they might as well admit that this is really paganism in disguise and go the whole way and take on The pagan practice, not just the Jewish practice. There's not that much of a difference for Paul between trusting in Jewish circumcision and trusting in pagan emasculation. He's saying it's the same thing. And so Paul is wishing that these false teachers would stop pretending that they're doing the right thing, trusting God, when really they're just trusting in their own efforts. He's wanting them to make it clear where they really stand. And emasculation would be a graphic way of doing that. They're outside the community of God's people. They're trusting in their own efforts and not in God. As uh, one Greek dictionary put it like this, uh, Paul thinks that they ought to carry their error to its logical extreme and thereby make evident something which is indubitably clear to him, namely, that they do not belong to the community of God. There's certainly a hint of frustration in Paul's voice, but he's not just being mean. They're not being honest about their relationship to to paganism. They don't see, they don't admit how deeply anti-Christian their teaching is. So Paul is wishing that they would make clear where they really stand. And He's doing that in a vivid way. So there's a subtlety to their message, um, but there is dishonesty to it as well. Subtle dishonesty, right, was leading the Galatians away from Christ. They were being hindered from obeying the truth. Stopping, uh, they were being stopped from walking in step with the gospel. And the question for us then is: Is what messages do we hear every day? Maybe clothed in Christian garb. Maybe that appear. Uh, to be Christian, or claim to be Christian, maybe not, but what messages do we hear every day that subtly, deceptively, lead us away from trusting in Jesus, and lead us away from trusting in Jesus, and to trusting in our own effort, know where are you tempted to believe that your sin is really not so bad, or, or God's judgment is not so severe, or or that your moral capabilities are not so impotent, or that your situation is not so dire, that God's love is not so radical and free as to bear sin. You know, often we hear uh, the message of looking good and somehow that translates into our mind as being good, right? I look good and so I must be good. Or we think that God's patience in judgment means a relaxing of judgment, right? Well, God isn't judging us right now so there must not be a judgment to come. Or we think that our natural ability implies spiritual ability. Right? Look at all these great things I can do in life. That must mean I can please God as well. Or we, thought, we fall into thinking, God will love me if I do, if I live up, if I attain. And as a result, we begin to think, think that things are not so bleak. Of course, these are kinds of things that people around us might emphasize, right? Appearances, natural abilities, e- even God's patience or his general love for creation. Um, I don't know if you know this, but, but VeggieTales recently uh, teamed up with Netflix, Netflix and VeggieTales. Um, and uh, don't get me wrong, I've, lot, I've watched a lot of VeggieTales in my house over the past 12 years. Uh, but VeggieTales is pretty moralistic. Right, you're not going to get the gospel from watching VeggieTales, um, and uh, at the end, uh, you you always hear this phrase: "Remember, God made you special, and He loves you very much." And you know, I was thinking about that the other day as I was finishing an episode of VeggieTales with Jeremiah, and um, and I thought that message to a broad Christian and non-Christian audience, right, via Netflix. What what does that what does that mean? What what's being said? Um, God does have a general love for all mankind, no doubt. Uh, but that general love uh, shown in God's patience in bringing judgment uh, is meant to lead us to repentance, right? God's kindness, his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. And, um, but, you know, as you watch VeggieTales, basically the message is be moral. I think the message in that episode was about patience. You know, be moral and God loves you. Be moral and God's loved you. That that's That's... Uh, That's a message that will lead you to be comfortable, right? Not a message that will lead you to repentance. And I know it's just a cartoon. Okay, I get it. But, But it's a common message of our culture, right? Just be moral and God loves you. The world emphasizes appearances, natural abilities, and God's, what we would call God's patience or common grace. But that kind of emphasis leads us to believe that our sin is not so bad and God's judgment is not so severe and our moral capabilities are, are not so uh, impotent, we're not so powerless, our situation is really not so dire, and so we think, just be a good person and everything will turn out fine. Well, we've talked about scandal and we've talked about persuasion, now let's talk about persecution, right? All light things in one sermon. Um, persecution. Paul says in verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, the Galatians were being persuaded away from their stance on the gospel, and Paul was being persecuted because of his stance on the gospel. And as you read through Scripture, You see persecution in a number of places, but as you read through Scripture, notice the kind of work that Satan does. Much of it is persuasive, lies, temptations. Much of that is subtle. All of it is deceptive. The other kind of work that Satan does is oppressive, accusations and troubles, and Paul was clearly persecuted for the gospel, right? He was often driven out of town. Other times he was stoned, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. And we don't often experience that kind of reaction from people today. Most of us don't. Uh, though that doesn't mean that Christians around the world don't, uh, as you probably know. Uh, in fact, by the, most, by the most conservative estimates that I could find, on average, 20 Christians are martyred every day for their faith. And that's by like the the conservative efforts, uh, estimates, um, that are a reaction to some of the sort of much more generous estimates that some Christian groups give. So that's the secular group saying, no, no, it's not not that many, it's just this many, just 20 a day. Um, Of course, there are whole countries where being a Christian is a crime and uh, others where conversion to Christianity can get you the death penalty. (coughs) Again, that's not our experience in this country, however, and, and while there are, are ways in which our country culture is and maybe is becoming more antagonistic to uh, conservative religious and moral views, uh, the real threat that we face at the moment is rejection, um, but the temptation is the same. The temptation is to deny the cross, right? Paul says, um, "But I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted?" Well, what's the what's the solve there, right? What's the fix for Paul? Well, just stop, start preaching circumcision, and then stop being persecuted, right? The temptation for Paul is to to preach to change his message, to remove the persecution. For us, it's to change our message, to re- remove the rejection of others, to remove the condemnation of other people. Right? The gospel itself, we started out saying, is offensive. It brings rejection. Whether that's full-blown persecution, like Paul experienced, or people experience other places in the world, or simply the condemnation of your coworkers, right? preaching a, a judgment-free God and a sin-free people who can do anything they put their mind to, removes the offense of the cross. And wouldn't it make life easier, right, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your classmates, your professors, if you, if you didn't have to talk about sin and judgment and powerlessness? Who likes to bring those topics up? The cross is offensive to our natural self. What do you do when people try to persuade you to an easier, more acceptable way? Or reject you when you obstinately refuse to veer from your gospel course? Well, that brings us to our last point about hope. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, whatever our situation, we tend to see no further than our situation. Our tendency is to think no bigger than our circumstances. We get kind of trapped in our circumstances. Paul has a much bigger picture in view, doesn't he? Uh, first thing, he, he tells us that he believes that the false teachers will be judged by God. Now, uh, th- this is not vindictiveness, uh, but a confidence in God's justice. Far from making people uh, bloodthirsty or making Paul bloodthirsty, right, it, it, his, his, this confidence in the justice of God Right, that, that God would one day right all wrongs, that, that God would free all those who are oppressed, that God will bring justice to their oppressors. Right? This confidence enables both uh, uh, the pursuit of justice, because I know this is, this is justice is God's will, and forgiving those who truly harm us, because I know that, that God is going to make all things right in the end. It's not my job. I don't have to be vindictive, I don't have to be vengeful. I can trust God, he's gonna take care of whatever whatever trials or struggles I've endured. Paul not only believes that the false teachers will be judged for the way they've done harm to the church, uh, but also, second, that the Galatians themselves will in the end side with Paul. Right, the beginning of verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Uh, Paul's confidence is interesting um, you know why is he so certain that the Galatians will agree with him in the end? How does he know? Right? Paul says, "I have confidence in the Lord." His confidence is not in the Galatians themselves, right? I mean, they're just like us, right? They're they're prone to weakness, they're prone to failure, they're prone to sin. But Paul is confident nonetheless, and his confidence is in God's power. This is the kind of thing Paul says elsewhere, Philippians chapter one, verse six, a great verse to to, to remember, right? I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Right, here is Paul's confidence. God had begun a good work in the Galatians, God is going to complete his good work in the Galatians. Paul is not ultimately afraid that the Galatians will apostatize, why? Because Paul knows God is not going to give up on you. God will not give up on you. Even if you look like you're about to give up on him, God will not give up on you. So Paul's confidence is in the Lord. I am confident in the Lord, he says. And our hope in light of sin and judgment, right? Our hope in light of of the pressures of this world to conform, our, our hope when things feel hopeless, is in the power of God. The cross shows us, Uh, Much, of course, about sin and judgment. Uh, It also shows us about God's love, as we've seen, because God bore sin and judgment at the cross. But we also need to remember, right, that the cross is not the end of the story. Jesus didn't merely go to the cross and die for sins. The resurrection follows the cross. And it's the resurrection that so clearly tells us that our hope is in God's power. Jesus' body lay dead in the grave, but God raised him to life again, conquering sin and death and Satan and hell. The resurrection tells us that that our hope is not in this life, but beyond this life, in the transformation of this life, through the resurrection to come at Jesus' return, the restoration of all things. The cross tells us some, some very hard truths, about ourselves and sin and judgment. also tells us some very beautiful ones about God's love and his willingness to sacrifice himself for us, about His Jesus' willingness to suffer in our place. But of course, the, the cross is followed by the resurrection where we see that all things will be made new, that all pressure to conform in this life will be done away with, that all persecution will be no more, that all troubles will come to an end. And so, whatever temptations or trials we might face, whether big or small, we face them with our eyes fixed on the risen Jesus and our hope of his return. Please pray with me. Our Father, our hope is in you. Our hope is in your plan, it's in your work, it's in your wisdom, it's in your power. It's in your love, your love displayed in the cross, in your self-giving, in your self-sacrifice in the cross. Help us, Father, to rest in the work of our Savior, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.